Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning, and let me say something that you uh, don't often have a chance to say uh, publicly to a group, especially as fine a looking group as this is this morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Brian has said that two or three times. We've, that's why we wanted to preach this morning, because we wanted to be able to say from here, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And uh, what a great New Year it's going to be. Uh, I figured out last night that I finally officially can say my car will be paid off next year. I was sitting there, I said, what a wonderful thought. After all these years, now I can say I'm only one year away. Officially, as of uh, midnight, I was just one year away from paying off my car. And uh, I don't know how you rang in the new year last uh, night, but uh, uh, I uh, was in my living room and uh, just, uh, you know, a real party reveler watching 1950s science fiction movies. Uh, the Blob. Steve McQueen is a teenager. Can you imagine that? And I, and I sat there uh, chasing this blob. And I sat there, and uh, Beth was out babysitting, and the kids were out, you know, doing what we all are supposed to do, ringing in the new year with fanfare. And I sat there, and I said, Now I know uh, why Ron Holton asked me to fill in for him this morning. Because he went down through a lengthy list, and he finally came to me and said, that guy's not going to be in any danger. He's going to be in good shape, in good shape to preach Sunday morning. Uh, he's old, and he'll probably be home in his living room, ringing in the new year, watching 1950s science fiction movies. And uh, so, so that's why I was selected. But anyway, it's, uh, it's nice to uh, see all of you uh, here in this officially this uh, brand new year. The only thing that disturbed me is I read in the paper uh, that uh, now, officially, and they had a big article in USA Today about this. It was a big write-up, and they had the woman's picture and everything. The first baby boomer who is turning 60 years old this year. Now, that's my generation. So that was, uh, and, and they had a picture of her with six or seven grandchildren, and I'm thinking, I'm not ready to be but, but uh, we're in that generation, 46 to 64, so any of you who are turning uh, 60 this year, congratulations. You're the uh, first wave of, uh, uh, you know, this huge demographic blob. <laughs> the, the hundreds of millions, a gazillion people are in this baby boomer thing, and, and so every time we cross a threshold, they make a big deal about it. We haven't done anything as a generation except... There's a lot of us. That, that's the only thing. You know, my, my father was in the greatest generation, World War II, and we've done nothing except multiply. And that's... Uh... But anyway, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite your attention to Philippians, the third chapter. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to turn this morning in God's Word to a familiar, but at the same time, I believe, very appropriate passage of Scripture to look at, to study this morning, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the third chapter and beginning at verse 7, and reading through verse 15, Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Paul writes, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we ask that you, by your mighty Holy Spirit, will quiet our hearts before your living word, that you will speak through your servant the message that you have, that you will anoint his lips, that what you have to say to us this morning on this first day of a new year will be meaningful to us. And Father, again, by the strength of your Holy Spirit working in us and through us, by your grace, help us to live out the challenge that you have before us. For we commit this time to you and to your holy and living word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Two frogs fell into a deep cream bowl. One was an optimistic soul, but the other took the gloomy view. We shall drown, he cried, without more ado. And so with a despairing cry, he flung up his legs and said, Goodbye, said the other frog with a merry grim. I can't get out, but I won't give in. I'll just swim around till my strength is spent. And then we'll die the more content. Bravely he swam till it would seem his struggles began to churn the cream. On top of the butter at last he stopped, and out of the bowl he gaily hopped. What of the moral tis easily found, if you can't hop out, keep swimming around. The Apostle Paul wasn't stuck in a bowl of cream when he wrote his letter to the church at Philippi. He was stuck in a dark damp and lonely prison. And from that place, the unlikeliest place of all for anyone to find reason to be optimistic or hopeful, the great apostle wrote this letter of joy, known as the epistle of joy to the Philippian believers. And from Paul's valiant and determined words, we may find this morning every reason to look forward to this new year with confidence and with hope because Paul's perseverance should be an inspiration to all of us at the outset of our brand new 12-month journey through 2006. What words of encouragement and exhortation, what words of faith and glorious expectancy, what words of purpose and resolution are these words from the Apostle's mighty pen. And his determination is not a grim one. It is not fatalism. It is not resignation. Instead, Paul writes about his life and his future from a worldview that pulsates with joy and with excited anticipation. 
Someone once remarked that an optimist believes that we live in the best of all possible worlds, and the pessimist fears that this is true. Now, I don't know how you would categorize yourself this morning as an optimist or as a pessimist, but Paul was indeed an incurable optimist. His confidence, however, was not a pie-in-the-sky naivete. His hope was rooted in his purpose for living, and that purpose was rooted in his unquenchable faith in Jesus Christ and in the amazing future God has in store for those who love him. In our text for this morning, in verses 12 through 14 of the third chapter of Philippians that we've just read, Paul writes, I don't mean to say, notice it with me. He says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I keep working toward that day when I will finally be all that Christ Jesus saved me for and wants me to be. No, dear brothers and sisters, I am still not all I should be. But I am focusing all my energies on this one thing. Forgetting the past. Putting that behind me. And looking forward to what lies ahead. I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us up to heaven. This morning, I want you to notice with me, first of all, Paul's priority, and it's found in verse 12. If you're taking notes, you may want to note this, or you may want to make a mental note. I apologize. We don't have the screen version this morning, but you'll just have to look at your Bible and uh, listen. Uh, In verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Paul concedes his imperfection, and I like that. He says, I'm not perfect. Gene Peterson in the message paraphrases that this way. I'm not saying that I have this all together or that I have it all made. That's reassuring from someone like Paul. Reassuring to the Philippians and to us. Paul is not exhorting here this morning from some high plateau of spiritual superiority. He's already admitted that he struggles just like you and I struggle. Just like we've struggled in 2005 and just like we're going to struggle in 2006. The Dallas Morning News had an editorial yesterday that said 2006 may not be that different from 2005. In fact, we're going to face a lot of the same challenges, a lot of the same problems. Things don't go away because you turn the calendar. And it's true not only in the life of the nation and the life of the world, but it is true in our own individual lives. But we have someone who is telling us to look ahead, who is saying, I struggle too. I'm with you. I know what it's like. I know how you feel. I know the temptations. Paul's cry to Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, is a graphic depiction of the inner turmoil the internal wrestling that sometimes grips us all, for we all sin. We all make mistakes. We've made some last year, and we'll make some more this coming year. Now, if any of you are sitting there this morning and you're thinking, well, I I don't know if I've made any mistakes, all you need to do is just turn to the person sitting next to you, and she will let you know that indeed you have. (laughs) It's a great encouragement. It is a great encouragement to know that Paul understands this about himself, and he understands it about us. He understands it in the Philippians. The great thing about God's Word is that it does not lecture us from some high plateau of unrealism, of unreality. 
Paul knows because he's saying, I've been where you are. I am where you are. You and I are in this journey together. We're taking this walk together. And it's a never-ending journey. It's a never-ending walk. We don't ever give up struggling in this life. What a relief to know that Paul understands this. Because a perfectionist, someone said, is a person who takes great pains and gives even greater pains to others. So we're glad to know that Paul is not a perfectionist. He says, I press on. Paul makes his mission in life, his life's goal, crystal clear. Here's what he says. And, and this comes the closest to the original Greek meaning of the New Testament. That language that requires so many English words to make up one Greek word. It's just fascinating about the Greek in the New Testament. But here's what Paul is really saying. I press on to take hold. That is, to grasp. The King James Version, which you may be looking at, says to apprehend. And today we use the word apprehend basically to talk about criminals. We apprehend people. We apprehend suspects. So the King James says apprehend, but that word in the Greek means for us to grasp, to take hold of, to grab hold of. He says, I press on to take hold, to grasp that for which Christ Jesus took hold of, that is, seized me, grasped me. He said, I was taken possession of. I was seized. I was grasped. And now Jesus is grasping me. Oh, I'm grasping Jesus. The same as I was seized. Paul perhaps was thinking back to that climatic day when Christ confronted him on the dusty road to Damascus one afternoon while he was on his way to capture and arrest Christians. Do you remember that account in Acts chapter 9? Instead, Paul was captured by Christ and his life was never the same again. And so, to the Philippian believers, he's relating that. And when he says... I am seeking to take hold of that for which I was grasped. He's speaking about his conversion experience. And he got knocked off his horse or his camel. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And we now have the term, a Damascus Road experience. The Damascus Road conversion because it was so dramatic. And Paul is reminding the Philippians of that, and perhaps he's thinking of that. And now this passionate apostle has only one thing in mind, although not perfect, not by a long shot. He declares plainly, this one thing I do. He doesn't say, these 50 things I dabble in. One thing is more important to Paul than anything else. One central objective consumes all of his thoughts and all of his action, informs his entire view of the world. Do you have a worldview this morning? It is true that many Christians would rather die than think. But we, but, we, but we nonetheless, in this day and age more than ever before, we need to think critically about our faith and how it relates to the world. I heard someone, I think it was Alistair Begg, uh, a wonderful, gifted, uh, dynamic, expository preacher, said, you know, if 25 years from now all that is left of the church is that we're sharing, we're strange people running around sharing our personal emotional experiences, Christianity will be dead. Paul says his view of the world is, is predicated, is formed, is shaped and molded by this one thing, that I may know Him, Jesus Christ, and the power of His resurrection. The power of His resurrection. He says that in verse 10, just two verses before our text. Notice it with me. 
Paul declares his life's great ambition. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Do you see that? I want to know Him. And the power, not of His death, not of His life, not of His miracles, not of His teachings, not of His seating the 5,000 or the 3,000, but the power of His resurrection. Because if Jesus Christ be not alive today, if there is no resurrection, Paul says to the Corinthians, we are of most people, of all people, most miserable. And he said, our faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And our preaching is in vain. Unless Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is the only thing that gives testimony to the truth of Christianity. It is the resurrection of Christ that was witnessed by 500. Jesus appeared to his disciples. When people are arguing with you about your faith, there's only one thing that matters. Did Jesus Christ come back from the dead or not? Is He a risen Savior that we serve today, or is He still in the tomb? That's all that matters. It doesn't make any difference how Jesus makes you feel. Because Buddha makes someone else feel the same way. You know, or yoga, or Zen, or Muhammad, or any of these other, or Joseph Smith. We had the Mormons come, and we, we brought them into the house, and the kids were there, and I wanted to have a little discussion. And, and they stayed uh, probably longer than they wanted to, but we just wouldn't let them go. You know, I want to know about what you believe and why you believe it. Paul said, my goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection. In verse 8 in our Scripture reading this morning, if you look, you look at verse 8 in Philippians 3, Paul says this. What does he say? I consider everything a loss when compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. The King James says, I consider them dung that I may win Christ. We need a great ambition in 2006. You need one. What is it? What's your great goal this year? Say, well, I've got a list of things I want to do this year. I've made some resolutions. I have some things that I want to do. But what is your great ambition? What is your overpowering ambition? What is it that you yearn to do, that you desire to do, that you want to do, that is your goal more than any other? Paul said, I'll tell you what mine is in 2006. It's to know Him. To know Him better. To follow Him more nearly, to love Him more dearly, and to see Him more clearly. That is my goal. And we all need to be fueled and led by great ambition. And none is greater for the Christian. None is more important for the Christian than this, to know Him and the power of His resurrection in our lives. That is this overarching theme that puts our life on this planet into some sort of sensible plan. Because the existentialist and the nihilist is at heart dissatisfied, unfulfilled, and unhappy. Someone said the unexamined life isn't worth living. And that's true. But neither is the meaningless life. What's the meaning in your life today? What will it be in 2006? Charlie Brown was in his backyard one day shooting arrows into the fence. And then he would proceed to the fence and draw a circle around the arrow where it went in. Well, uh, his friend Lucy came along and noticed what he was doing and asked him why he did this. And Charlie smiled and replied, because this way I hit the target every time. It concerns us to know, wrote Aristotle, the purposes that we seek in life. For then, like archers aiming at a definite mark, we shall more likely attain what we want. What are you aiming for? What do you desire to hit in 2006? Maybe it's making more money. Maybe it's having a new home. 
You know, this year, by God's grace, we're going to build a new church. Praise be to God. But the greatest ambition and the greatest goal should be to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Everything else pales in comparison to that. Pastor and author Rick Warren said this, A great commitment to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment will make a great Christian and a great church. Paul aimed high and he held his aim. Again, looking at the Greek and trying to put some English to the Greek words that he wrote to the Philippians. For my determined purpose is that I may know Him, that is, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of His person more strongly and more clearly every day. That sounds like a great New Year's resolution to me. This was Paul's priority. This one thing I do, I press on. And then notice with me, secondly, Paul's perspective. Look at verse 13. Paul declares, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I like that. Forgetting what is behind. What did Paul mean by that? Paul is not saying that he doesn't remember the past. Indeed, our memories are precious gifts. And it's fun to look back and remember the good times and the good people of our lives. Uh, My mother is a great photographer. She takes pictures of everyone Uh, She takes pictures of the gas station attendants. She takes pictures of the people that wait on us at Pizza Hut. She takes pictures of everyone. And uh, I don't know how she sends these pictures. She sends them to the people. She gets their names and addresses. And, uh, you know, there have been times, God bless my mother. I love her. She's a true saint. But there are times, you know, when you get a little embarrassed. Well, let me take your picture. Mother, we hardly know them. But they're strangers. They're saying, why is she taking my picture? But she's over the years, she's taken pictures, and we grew up. In, uh, the kids grew up in, in Maine, and, and my folks were nearby, and they took videos and took pictures. And now you look at those pictures, and you look back to those memories. Beth has told me, and I understand this because I'm that way myself. We look at the pictures of the girls when they were little and innocent and submissive and obedient. And, uh, we, and, and, we, and we say, and, and, and we start to cry because there are pleasant memories. Now, it's true that every stage in life uh, with children has its own memories, but we'll get into that later. I'm going to talk to you about that in just a moment, as a matter of fact. But Paul says it's not that we forget that we just erase our memories. When he says forget the past, that's not what he's talking about at all. Paul is saying that he doesn't let the past control either the present or his future. The view of his life is not overpowered by an unhealthy preoccupation with what has gone on before. Paul refuses to live in the past. And when he says forgetting the past, that's exactly what he means. Not being anchored to it. Not living in it. Not being so absorbed in it that he forgets the present and forgets the future. When God declares that he will remember your sins no more, in Isaiah, he's not having a convenient memory lapse. God is saying that our past sins are forgiven. That they've been washed away by the precious blood of Christ. And thus they will not control or determine how God sees us any longer or how He loves us, or what He will do concerning us. That's what it means when He says, I've forgotten your sins. God never fully forgets. He can't. But He doesn't hold them against us. And that's what this means. And this is what Paul means. The past is forever gone. All the disappointments and defeats of your past cannot be erased. Nor can all glories and achievements be relived. The past is known. It is fixed. It is unalterable. We cannot change it for good or for bad. It's impossible to do it. Choices you've made, decisions that I've made, the circumstances that were beyond our control, nothing you can do now will change any of it. That's why it's always wrong to dwell on the past. 
A young man asked an older one, what's the secret of your success? Good decisions, he replied. Well, how do you learn to make good decisions? Experience, he says. Well, how do you gain that experience? His answer was, by making bad decisions. Harley Earl, the legendary design chief of General Motors, who was responsible for some of the most beautiful cars in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, once said this, The stylist is never content with what is or what has been. He always lives in the future. Always. Dealing with what will be. Paul believed that the past can be a guidepost, but it must never for us be a hitching post. Paul tells the Philippians that he's straining toward what is ahead. Paul is a future-focused kind of guy. He loves to look forward to what is ahead, and he's anxious to get there. He says he's straining toward the future. The idea here, the imagery that he's conjuring up in, in here in Philippians and in other places in his wonderful writings is that of a runner stretching toward the mark, seeing the tape, seeing the finish line, and straining with all his might to get there. That's what he means when he says forgetting the past. Any good runner will tell you, in a race, you never look back. You don't look and see who's gaining on you because you look back, someone might be gaining on you. You look ahead. You look at where you're going. You look at the future. You look at your goal. You look at the finish line. That's where you're going. That needs to be your focus. That needs to be your attention, not the past. He's looking forward to what lies ahead. Looking forward to it. I want to ask you a question. Can I get personal? Are you looking forward to 2006 with great expectancy and confidence? Or are you dreading it? Are you looking forward to 2006 in fear or dread or frustration or anger or remorse that things weren't better this past year? I hope they're better this year. God loves you. He really does. He has a plan for you. He really does. That's not just Christian can't. That's truth. He has a plan and a purpose for everyone. And Paul said, I look forward to the future. I look forward to it. I'm anxious to get there. I can hardly wait. That's Paul's whole philosophy about Christianity and the world. It's his whole world view. It's the future, the future, the future. And Paul's philosophy determines his attitude, and attitude is everything. Wrote Dr. Charles Swindoll, words can never adequately convey the incredible impact of our attitude toward life. The longer I live, says Dr. Swindoll, the longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us, and it's 90% how we respond to it. In Jesus' parable found in Matthew 7, the same storms assaulted both the house built on the sand and the one built upon the rock. But the one perished and the other withstood the storm. Why is that? The foundation of faith made all the difference. Paul had built the house of his life upon his rock-solid faith in Christ. He says, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection, and that's why I'm looking forward to the future. I'm looking forward to the future that He has prepared for me. And it made all the difference in how he saw life itself, how he perceived both the past and the future. Paul's priority, Paul's perspective, and finally, Paul's persistence. Notice verse 14. We see Paul's persistence. Look at verse 14 with me, if you would. In verse 14 of our text, Paul says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Got that? I press on toward the goal to win the prize. This is Paul, the athlete, the runner. He's straining toward what is ahead. He's off and running. And now he's pressing on. 
toward the goal. He's pressing on toward that finish line. He'll run to the finish. He's not going to give up. What's one of the last things he told Timothy? Do you remember in his second letter? Timothy, the day of my departure is, about, is at hand. And I, my life is about to be poured out as a drink offering to Christ. But I have kept the faith. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the course. Timothy, listen to me, son. I crossed the finish line. And I want you to cross the finish line, too. Paul didn't give in. Paul was persistent. Persistence is critical to a life well lived. Perseverance. Just keeping on, keeping on. I remember when I preached my first sermon, I was 19 years old. It was preached in the East Benton Bible Church. There were 23 people there. It might have been 25. I was 19 years old. I was as nervous as a hog on ice. My knees were shaking. And I preached. And I had tape recorded my sermon. I couldn't even get the button to start. I was hands were shaking so bad. But I preached on five facts of life you should never forget. Life is short. Death is sure. There's a judgment to face. There's a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. I preached that when I was 19. Now, for those of you who are youngsters, as most of you are, compared, that's the year George McGovern ran against Richard Nixon. But I remember taking that tape, and I took it home, and I played it to my father. And he sat in his, uh, rock, in his uh, recliner in the living room on his farm there in Pittsfield, Maine, and he listened to the whole thing without saying a word. I was so anxious to, to get some positive reaction. And my father listened to the sermon. It was horrible, I'm certain. And he said, well, Jack, I'm excited. I said, really, Dad? He says, yes, I am. Because he said, I've got some good news. I said, what's that, Dad? He said, well, there's one thing for sure. I said, well, what is it, Dad? He was searching carefully for his words. He said, you're bound to get better. (laughs) And that was an honest compliment. That was the one that he paid. This past year, Beth and I have had the thrill, and I use that word intentionally, of seeing two of our daughters get their driver's licenses. Now, when the parents sign on to teach the children themselves, it's a lot like the natural childbirth deal when us guys started going in to see our children come into the world. It's better that we stay in the waiting room, and it's better that the driver's ed people teach them. My wife said to me, Beth said, I'm not going with them. You're going with them. I said, me? Yes. So get in. I made sure I had confessed all of my sins and that everything was right with me and the Lord because you just never know what's going to happen. And, and this isn't Maine, and it isn't even Connecticut. This is like the Metroplex. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, 35 and all of that. And, and uh, I remember Vanessa and Olivia, they both told me, they said, Dad, don't grip, don't grip so hard the dashboard. It makes me nervous. I wanted to say, you think you're nervous? I'm petrified. I am in fear of my very life. I remember when Olivia uh, went to learn about parallel parking. Olivia, you remember that day? We went over, uh, and we, I said, well, she said, can I take your car? I said, no, we're taking the van. Tom, the old van, it was, which would make no difference if it was in a total collision. You couldn't tell the difference. See? So she took that, and I sat out on the curb over the place where they do the parallel parking, and there were two poles, grateful that they're plastic and rubber, and she banged one, and then she banged the back one, and then she banged the front one and the back one. And uh, how did I do? Or she was out too far. I said, well, you, you, you're doing fine, but we need to keep going. 
We can do better. Just keep going. Just keep doing it. You're getting better every time, but you, this is not the time to give up. Keep going. And she did it again and again. We were there for, I would say, the better part of an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes. Finally, I told her, I said, if you can parallel park three times without banging the poles, we'll go home. And she did. Now, I don't know when she'll parallel park, but both of the girls are getting better all the time. And it's the experience. And they decided on their own to go out on 35, a remarkable thing. And uh, they're still alive. Uh, and they're, and uh, one of them's here. The other one, not because she's not uh, alive. But, uh, she's... but they're getting better. These two are getting better all the time. And, uh, and you know, if we persist, there will be improvement. So don't give up on your prayer life. Don't give up on your quiet time. Maybe this is a new start for you. This year, I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to read my Bible every day. You need to keep on keeping on. Paul said, I press on. Press on. Press on. Keep on going. Don't give up. Don't give up. I'd give my life to be able to play the violin like that. Gusta fan of Yitzhak Perlman's. Madam, he replied, I did. And many of you have had the same experience. What you do and do well, you didn't do well the first time. But through experience, you've gotten better and better and better, and you're still improving, so keep at it. Paul says, I press on. We conquer, wrote George Matheson, not in any brilliant fashion. We conquer by continuing. In addressing the Harrow School on October 29, 1941, Winston Churchill astounded his audience by the brevity of his remarks. He was late. The students had waited for an hour, and the Prime Minister finally arrived. He went to the podium, and here's what he said. Never give in. Never Never, never, never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never give in. And then he sat down. That was his speech. Renowned Christian author Max Licato's first book was rejected by 15 publishers. Jonas Salk failed 200 times before he found the right vaccine for polio. And General Douglas MacArthur as a young man, was turned down not once, but twice by West Point. Don't give in. Don't give out. Don't give up. Paul says, I press on. I forget the past, and I press on to the future. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews, who may indeed have been Paul, we don't know, he exhorted his Christian readers, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out, for us. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes, Paul says, in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to gain a crown that will last for all eternity, that will last forever. Press on. Press on toward the tape. Press on to the finish line. Press on to gain the victory. The great Scottish Olympic runner Eric Little, known for his remarkable feats as a sprinter, amazed the crowd with his victory in the 400-meter race. He was once asked how he did that. You're a sprinter, Mr. Little. How is it that you can run the 400 meters and win it? How did you do that? And here's what Little said. Well, answered Little, I run the first 200 meters as fast as I possibly can. And then I run the second 200 meters faster 
Paul's priority. What is it? This one thing, to press on and to know Christ. Paul's perspective, to put the past behind him and to strive forward toward a glorious heavenly future. Paul's persistence, to press on toward the goal no matter what and to win the prize. So my prayer for you this morning and for us and for Rock Point Church collectively and for you individually and as families and for my family and myself is to have a singular attitude, to have one great desire, one overwhelming ambition and passion in the next 12 months of our life, to know Him, the power of His resurrection, and to press on toward the high call that we have in Christ Jesus to the finish line. We're going to pray, but we're going to do it a little differently. Most Protestant churches, you don't read your prayers. But in recent years, I have been blessed tremendously in my quiet time with God by reading a little collection of prayers entitled, The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers prayed and written three to four hundred years ago. And one of those prayers I selected and I'd like you to bow your heads with me as we close this service, this part of the service. And I've asked Michael and the worship team to sing a song again that we sang earlier about pursuing one great ambition and one great passion. But I pray that this will be our prayer as we bow our heads and close our eyes. May this be your prayer in your life. Heavenly Father, make it my chiefest joy to study Thee, meditate on Thee, gaze on Thee, sit like Mary at Thy feet, lean like John on Thy breast, appeal like Peter to Thy love, count like Paul all things done. Give me increase and progress in grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can only be found in the Creator. Let not faith cease from seeking Thee until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, Thou King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.